At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Y'all, please be seated and good morning. Question for you this morning, what is the shortest speech that's ever existed. Now, some of y'all are thinking, I hope it's going to be right now, Father Matt. (laughs) And you're not going to be that disappointed this morning, but what is the shortest speech that's ever been delivered? When I was younger, uh, I was very interested in Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, that great leader of uh, Great Britain and the UK during some of the most tumultuous years of the 20th century. In fact, I wrote a paper on Churchill when I was in the eighth grade. There's an apocryphal story about Winston Churchill that he gave that that, that, that has to do with something that he supposedly did during the darkest days of World War II. It was one of the shortest speeches in all of American history. Quote, never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never give up. 11 words. Or you might think of it as three words, never give up. They get repeated over and over again. Now, friends, today we come to Matthew 14, this story of Jesus' disciples on a stormy lake on a stormy lake called the Lake of Galilee in the wee hours of the morning. And in this little vignette, this little story, Jesus delivers one of the shortest speeches possible, one of the shortest sermons possible. In our English Bibles, it's only nine words long. In fact, you can find it in your service leaflet in the gospel lesson. It's sort of in the middle on the left side of the page. It's only nine words in English, but in Greek, it's only five. But before we get to the sermon, let's back up a little bit. When we meet the disciples today out on that stormy lake, they are panicked to the core. They're scared to death that they're about to die. After all, every year, people die on that lake. That's how dangerous those storms were. Here is how one expert describes the Lake of Galilee. Quote, the Gospels record the sudden storms that occur on the lake. The topography of the surrounding hills and canyons create wind funnels across the lake, particularly the northern part of the lake. 
Storms on the Lake of Galilee are serious, especially wind storms that blow in from the east, off of the Golan Heights, down onto the lake. The easterly wind storms that hit the land of Israel are quite severe, and even in the present day can cause damage to property and agriculture, even loss of life. These easterly winds are known as sharkia, from the Arabic word for east. They turn the lake's waters into a churning, violent swell, easily 10 to 12 feet high, close quote. Y'all, just imagine how those disciples were feeling that night as they're being tossed to and fro by those waves. They're at their wit's end. They're sweating bullets. They're panicked like never before. And so Jesus comes down. Jesus comes down from the mountain to be with them. Suddenly, his disciples, his friends look up, and they can see him. He's coming to them on the water. They rub their eyes. Jesus is actually walking on the water. They can't believe their eyes, but they become even more scared because they think he's a ghost. And as Jesus walks out to them on the water, he realizes just how terrified they are. He looks at them, and that is when he speaks these nine little words, five in Greek, five words in Greek. In just nine little words, Jesus says three things. Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. And y'all, what I want to do with you this morning just for a few brief minutes is to unpack these three statements. And the first one is take heart. Now, some translations in your Bibles might say take courage. But either way, it's good because the root word of the word courage is the Latin cur, C-U-R, which is the same as the French word cur. By the way, in Spanish, it's similar, corazón. It means heart. Jesus approaches the terrified disciples as they're being tossed to and fro. He looks at them and he says, have courage, take heart. I wonder if there's anyone in the room this morning who's in need of courage. Jesus looks at his disciples. He looks at you and me and he says, take heart, have courage. Courage. Now, why does Jesus speak of the heart? Well, first off, it shows us that sometimes it's okay to be scared. Sometimes it's okay to have fear. By the way, do you know what courage is? It's not brashness. Courage is not recklessness. Courage is not the lack of fear. Actually, courage is the ability to move forward in spite of your fears. The classic example of courage, all the way back to Aristotle, is a soldier at his post. If a soldier on the battlefield is courageously standing his post or her post, does that mean that she is devoid of fear? I hope not. A Ukrainian soldier on the battlefield should have a reasonable fear of a Russian tank, for example. Courage is not the lack of fear. 
It's the ability to move forward in spite of your fears. It's the ability to move forward through your fears. But y'all, there's another reason I think that Jesus speaks of the heart. It's because of the special role of the heart in the Christian life. So many examples come to mind about how the word heart pops up in the Bible over and over again. But the most vivid for me is probably Luke 24, when we find those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're distraught, they're distressed, their world has come crashing down around them because Jesus has died. And the risen Christ, the risen Christ shows up to them later, and, they, and what do they say? They say, we're not our hearts. We're not our hearts burning within us in the breaking of the bread. Do you see our hearts? I wonder if there's anyone in the room this morning who's interested in exploring the Christian faith afresh. If so, remember this. The Christian faith is a religion of the heart. It's a way of the heart. What Jesus does is to move our hearts But y'all, do you remember, do you remember what Jesus says next in his brief little sermon in Luke? Take heart, yes. Take heart, he says, yes, that's true. But then, it is I. It is I. And y'all, once again, I looked at the Greek, and it literally says, I am. I am. I wonder if that sounds familiar. I am. You might remember Exodus 3 when the Lord speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and says, tell them that I am sent you. And then a few lines later, we hear, I am who I am. That title, I am, is translated into English as the Lord capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Friends, what Matthew's telegraphing to us this morning is that that one approaching the boat in the midst of the storms, the wind, the pounding waves, that one is the Lord God himself. The maker of heaven and earth, the one with the power to still the waters. Why? Because he's the one who created the waters the one with the power to calm the waves because God is the one who invented the wave, mightier than the sound of many waters, Psalm 93 says, mightier than the breakers of the sea, mightier is the Lord who dwells on high. Psalm 93 and Matthew 14 are saying the same thing, the one able to calm the storms of life, the literal storms of life, but the metaphorical storms of life. That one is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And y'all, that brings us to the final word, the final word of Jesus to his terrified, beleaguered disciples. Number one, take heart. Number two, I am. And then finally, thirdly and finally, he looks at them, Jesus does, and he repeats the most frequently commanded commandment in scripture, do not fear. Now, earlier, we said that it's okay to be scared sometimes, did we not? 
since courage actually presupposes fear, and that is correct. But what I want you to notice, what I want you to notice this morning is what it is that allows the disciples finally to experience true calm, true peace, true fearlessness. What is it? It's not a fourth statement in Jesus' sermon. It's not a, an additional statement that he makes. It's not something that he says. Rather, it is a deed that he performs. It's not something said. It's something done. Because yes, Jesus' three words, his three statements, they're important. But you know what? Without the deed, they would be worthless. Thanks be to God, we have a Savior who doesn't just say things. Thanks be to God, we have a Savior who does things. And what does he do? Very simply, dear friends, he gets into our boat. He gets into our boat. He climbs into the hard wood of the boat. And there's so much that we could say here. But what I want to leave you with is that the hard wood of the boat points us to the hard wood of the cross. One of the books in front of you, and I know there's a lot, one of the books in front of you is the Book of Common Prayer. And one of my favorite prayers from the Book of Common Prayer starts out like this. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross. See, the hard wood of that boat reminds us of the hard wood of the cross. When Jesus entered the boat, the storms calmed. When Jesus mounted the cross, the storms calmed. True, we live in a world that still has war. We live in a world that still has famine and danger and depression and anxiety. Yeah, that's true. But on the cross, the true peace of the world was glimpsed. On the cross, the true peace of the world was born. On the cross, the true peace of the world was made possible. On the cross, we see that God himself, God, God's self, enters our world, our situation, our storms, our mess, that God experiences our pain, that God himself lays down his life for us. And speaking of boats, I want to close like this. Does anyone know what building we're in right now? Anyone know what this room that we're in right now is called? It is called a nave. The nave, N-A-V-E. That word nave comes from the Latin navis, N-A-V-I-S, related to words like navy or navigation. Guess what the word nave means? It means boat. Y'all, we're in a boat right now. If you use your imaginations, and by the way, the Christian life is nothing without imagination. And if you use your imaginations right now, and if you look up at the ceiling of a properly designed church like this one, you can imagine that you're looking on the inside of a boat that's been turned upside down, an upside down boat. 
we are invited to imagine the church as a boat navigating through the storms of life. Storms of long COVID, storms of a historic town in Hawaii that's been burnt to a crisp, storms of economic uncertainty, storms of a single mom who's now facing the prospect of raising kids alone, storms of exhaustion. The storms of life will never stop beating down upon us, not in this world. The storms of life will never stop raging, not in this world. But friends, guess what? Christ is in this boat. He's in this boat in a myriad of ways, in the word of God, in the body and blood of Christ, in the loving, wise members of this church as they shepherd each other through the storms of life. Christ gets into our boat, and because he's here with us in the boat, guess what? All is well. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.